Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Janine Garofalo is, was, and shall ever be a comedy darling. We've all come to know and love her since 1992, when she performed on one of the all-time lineups for an HBO Young Comedian special and appeared in both the Ben Stiller Show and the Larry Sanders Show. Over the next few years, she also racked up big screen roles in Reality Bites, The Truth About Cats and Dogs, The Cable Guy, Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, Mystery Men, and Wet Hot American Summer. After appearing on the radio with Air America, Garofalo's more recent credits have included 24, Delocated, Broad City, The Jim Gaffigan Show, and the Wet Hot prequel on Netflix. Her newest role is in the film Little Boxes, which premieres at the 2016 Tribeca Film Festival. I'm honored to spend some time with Janine Garofalo, so let's get to it! Uh, that raises a good question, Janine Garofalo. Uh, yes, 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 of course it does. What was your first uh, your first road gig like, your first road travels? Gosh, I, it's hard to remember. It's it's a long time ago, so mm. I, I don't know that I would remember the very first. Um, it would be in the 80s, and uh, I was part of this thing called NACA, National the College. College. Yeah, I don't even know if they have it anymore, but you, yeah, know, you go and there's booths and you perform and then the college bookers come to booths to book you for schools. I was always rarely tapped to to do colleges back then. But um, back then, it, uh, it was a dra- – you would take a airplane to a hub, and then I would rent a car and hit different places from there. But that was a little bit in. So I guess some of the first would have been either somewhere around Rhode Island or Boston Um because you actually started as a road comic. Well, started literally with open mics, and then because you were you were taking the bus to. Oh no 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 to, no! I was in college. I was right. at Providence College, and then I would go sometimes to Periwinkle's. Uh, I had a car. Okay. Um, in Rhode Island, and then when I moved to Boston, I still had a car, and there was public transportation. Then also, I, I was living in Houston briefly, and I had a car. So. Um, there was buses taking stuff for roads, like like I'm talking about with NACA. Right. Uh, if you, instead of renting a car, sometimes you would take a bus from point A to point B. And because I have a terrible sense of direction, I'm a poor orienteer. Uh, that was always late, not knowing where I was going, and mm-hmm. um, it, it was that was that was a drag. But it's like any, like any, you know, they're, they're uh, you're young, so it's easy to adapt and it's exciting. <laughs> in its way, you know right. what I mean. Like anything is, to me, easily assimilated when you're in your early twenties, and and not that much of a hardship. As you get older, now you know I'm I'm over fifty, and when I'm on the road, even though I'm taking an airplane and a cab or a car is picking me up to go to a hotel, it's more of a hardship actually now because right. it's uh, the inconveniences aren't so easily shaken off as when you're young, um, and especially when you're on the on the road for an extended period, and it's a different place each night. That grind, it's just very tedious and, do you know what I mean? That, right. and, I, and I like being alone. So that's actually not a problem. I don't mind spending time with myself at all. That's not the problem. It's going through security, again, uh, the next day at the airport, <laughs> taking your shoes off, or because I wear a lot of jewelry, getting pulled out of the line, and th- those little things. 
um, can be a drag. I'm sorry, that was a very long answer. And very you have boring. You haven't answer. adapted to the. Well, if I could it. at least just spend two nights somewhere, that that actually because okay. I enjoy going to different cities. I I don't mind the road per se, and it's nice, uh, especially to go to places you don't go very much or have never been. That's I feel lucky to be able to do that. But when it's something like every, even if you had three shows in a night, like say at some clubs or venues, you could do a seven, a nine, uh, and an eleven p.m., right. and then you don't get home or to the hotel until very very late. And then your flight leaves at like 9 a.m., but you still have to be at the airport about an hour before that. You know, you're, that can be a drag. Um, and, and I'm not complaining because many people have much harder things to do in a day. I'm just saying if you're asking, right. that, that is a tedious thing for me. And if I could at least just spend two nights somewhere, that would be better. <laughs> you <laughs> but, know, if but, you had two, 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 instead of three shows in one night, you could do one show one night or two the next, something like that. So you could spend but the day. But when you were a college student, this seemed like the dream. It was romantic. Yeah, yeah. It was... It, it was It was great. It was... Uh, I mean, there was certainly... It's not great to bomb at all, and it's not great to not not be uh, particularly popular among the comics as a newcomer sometimes. And, you know, that wears off after a while, and then right. it's fine. It's like any group you go into that you're new. But... Um, it's uh, It was exciting to be doing something that was enjoyable to me because I did not have a great time in college. It, uh, uh, I, I did not enjoy the college I picked. It wasn't a good fit. I went to Providence College, Rhode Island. It just wasn't a good fit for me. You were not a friar? I was not a friar. Taught by friars, was not a friar. When's um, the last time you've been to the Friars Club? Not for a very long time. I actually was a member for a while, and then um, every time you – I would go there, or a lot of times go there. There's, mm-hmm. um, it's almost like going to a relative's house. Obligations. We're doing this this thing, or or you need to come to this brunch. Or it was like you're descended upon by very nice people who right. are, you know, long time friar. There's always events, and, and to their credit, they're always doing something. But they always, uh, the minute you walk in, uh, it's like I said, it almost feels like a familial Mr. obligation. Ruffalo. It's any comic, you know what I mean? Right. We're doing this. And also, I don't like roasts. The comedy of cruelty, I'm not comfortable with it. I don't want to participate. I'm not good at it. Uh, I agreed to do one where I just sat on the dais, and even mm-hmm. that made me terribly uncomfortable. It was Jerry Stiller was being roasted. Because many a truth spoken in jest, there's these grains of truth that are aimed at the person being roasted. And right. you can see that it does affect them, especially when you're sitting very close to them. Mm. And uh, also, they've become increasingly nasty, right? Uh, and done by people who barely know the person. You know, the original it's a, it's a television were very event. Now. It's now a television event, and to me, na- now it's all why. Right. You know that that to me, all the camaraderie and fellowship that could make that cruelty bearable is gone. You're now being roasted by people you've never met. They even roast people who are not there. They <laughs> roast. You know, they'll take the time to take shots at comics who have nothing to do with that particular roast. Right. Uh, or pop culture people, stuff like it. You know, it's just, uh, to me, uh, something that, uh, again, much like Providence College, is not a good <laughs> fit for me. And um, so I sort of let my membership fade away into the ether at the Friars Club. But even in college, you knew that comedy was an option. Not an option, but it, just something I wanted to pursue. I decided that in high school. Okay. That I wanted to, in some way, whether it be a comedy writer for a show or... Because I didn't know how, but I... Knew I wanted to, to be involved in this world, and I'd always loved stand up, uh, watching it, and had been a fan, 
and used to listen to comedy albums all the time as a kid, they they tended to be much more popular in the 60s and 70s. Uh, you know, it was not unusual for somebody to buy a George Carlin album and listen to it over and over right. again. And my parents had Nichols and May albums and Bob and Ray and stuff like that. Then there was the Fire Sign Theater stuff like that. And I had an older brother who who had these albums. And were you in New Jersey or Texas at Both. the time? Both. Okay. Um, I was mostly in New Jersey, born in, and raised mostly mm-hmm. in New Jersey, but my father worked for a company that had the headquarters were both in New Jersey and Houston, so okay. we would go back and forth, but to the same neighborhood each time. Okay. So, but, but predominantly New Jersey. When was the first time you were aware of Bill Hicks? Um, actually, much younger, because my brother went to high school uh, the same. He actually, which I didn't know till his memorial, he lived in my neighborhood. I didn't know that okay. um, until it, in, in Nottingham Forest was the name of this big neighborhood. But um, he was older than me, but younger than my brother. But they w- did go to the same high school. But I did start watching stand-up comedy early on, early high school. And um, there, there was talk of another teenager doing stand-up, and that was Bill Hicks. Then when I was a teenager and went to the comedy workshop in Houston, I got to see him perform. I didn't know him at that time. Okay. But he uh, was a teenager doing stand-up, and he was very good. And then T. Sean Shannon uh, also started doing it as a teenager. I mean, I was 19, but I don't consider that as young. They were like 15. Right, he was 15, 16. And um, you would always hear about him. You know what I mean? When people were talking about comedy and stuff like that. But um, I had the good fortune to open for him in the 90s at the Punchline in San Francisco. Uh, so instead of just watching, I got to actually introduce it, you know. And I, of course, was so nervous that I would bomb constantly. And he was very gracious about it and then bring him up. And luckily for the audience, he would then do very well. <laughs> so they're, they they uh, were probably chagrined that I had to be there a little bit before he was. But it was a thrill for me each night to watch him. But seeing him doing comedy as a teenager, did, how much did that... Like, I didn't think of it in those reson- terms. ...resonate with you in terms of, oh, I no, can do that. that, did, that, that didn't, you uh, know, I, I, of course, always thought that's exceptional, mm-hmm. you know, that he can do that. Uh, I certainly wouldn't have had the courage nor the talent to do it as a 15-year-old. That was not me at all. I was, I was a... I, I, would never have been able to do that. But when you're in college, you know, you are away from home. I mean, I, I, I and again, 19 to me doesn't seem like that young. Sure. It's a, I had been out of the house since I, you know, like many people, like when you're 17, if, if you go to school um, and, uh, or even if you move out after high school. So it wasn't that strange to then start doing open mics at a venue very near my college. In fact, walking distance, uh, a brisk walk, a, a decent walk, but a, <laughs> if you get your arms into it, a, a good walk nonetheless. And uh, so that, and then I, upon graduation, moved to Boston because the comedy scene was so good there. So that was why Boston instead of New York? Yes. And also it was just closer and easier. And, you know, New York and L.A., I think it can be a mistake to start there because people tend to have long memories about when you're very green. <laughs> and they're slow to change that. Right. And... There's also precious little stage time. Now, there's much more now between Brooklyn, the outer boroughs, and Manhattan. There is no end of, of venues that are not comedy clubs that you can do stand-up in. But even the open micers that I talk to now, it's still hard. There's so many. Whereas Houston and Rhode Island, 
and Boston to some degree and other cities, there's much more stage time to be had because there's far less comics vying for the time. What was your what was your dream at that point when you um, when you moved to Boston to start Colony? Uh, just my biggest goal: get on the David Letterman show. to to be on the David Letterman show. To me, was the be all end all. To meet George Carlin, to meet Albert Brooks. These were dream- to meet Catherine O'Hara or anyone from SCTV. To me, these were dreams. Like someday, maybe I will perform on the Letterman show and. He'll like me. <laughs> uh, or I will run into Andrew Martin and Catherine O'Hara somewhere and they'll like me. You know, just those were – that was the dream or Albert Brooks to some – work with Albert Brooks or something. And how did you think you were going to accomplish that? I didn't know. That's – that's such is <laughs> the delights of being young right. and terribly stupid. You know what I mean? I had no sense of that this could go horribly wrong. Uh, you may never achieve anything. I didn't even think in – those terms. Now that came later. You know what I mean? So more and more self-doubt and the <laughs> idea of failure definitely asserted itself. Actually, oddly, more as I became more successful because I wasn't used to being criticized so much. Right. And then people then review you or criticize you or even say to your face what they think of you, which doesn't happen as often when you're younger. There's a... that. Reminds me, when you did the Young Comedian special in 1992, it opens with uh, brief little clips which, with each of the comedians uh, giving random quotes, or maybe you uh-huh. were pre-interviewed. I, yeah, like, we say were pre-interviewed, but I don't, I don't remember what the... The quote, the quote that they have from you on there says, I have no self-esteem left, and I hate to be the girl comic that talks about those types of things, and I never thought I would be, but I'm a beaten man. Uh, yeah, well, here's what may, I don't remember saying that I'm sure I did. And also, there's nothing wrong with being a girl comic. Mm-hmm. But, uh, what I think I meant by that was people assume that certain genders are going to talk about certain things right. and that's all they are. Now, I think the reason I was motivated more so upon, for that special, because even from the beginning, I would do stuff that had just occurred to me that day or, or whatever, even though they want you to lock it down. Right. Now, I certainly did what I told them I would do, but I think I also added because they, they're, when you do photo shoots for stuff like that or whatever, there's always a, a conversation about your looks, especially if you're female. Now, I, uh, there was a conversation that took place in front of me about how full my face was and how, how can they angle me or position me in the photo shoot to make my face look less full. Now, there was other male comics there who you could accuse of having a full face who enjoyed a cocktail as much yeah. as I did. None, nothing was said about that. Also, they didn't like the outfit I chose, which was, I guess, kind of casual. They said nothing to the other. Uh, so so that, I think, kicked that in uh, for that evening. And I'm sure I made that quote on the heels. <laughs> Just in the moment. Of overhearing very audible conversation in front of me and the other comics about how full my face was, and that was not ideal for the photo shoot. <laughs> I just like the turn of phrase that you say you hate to be the girl comic, but you're a beaten man. Uh, yeah. Well, I I feel that, uh, you know, there's equal – we are all – our sexuality is fluid, and we all have equal parts, male, female, in, in us. But uh, the, the phrase is, I guess, beaten man. So I guess I just attach that to right. it. But um, I don't hate to be the girl comic. There's no shame in being a girl comic. But I don't like gender ghettoizing, and I I don't I don't uh, like questions like, "What's it like? Is it hard for female comics?" Or 
or that tired thing about what do you say to people who say women aren't funny? I just say that is a tired right. trope and not even worth discussing at this point. Most people aren't that funny. Uh, it has nothing to do with gender or skin color or anything like that. And um, so, so that, or when they do nights of all female comedy, they never do all white guys. There's never been a flyer that says tonight five white guys will be doing comedy. <laughs> no, that's just implied. Uh, it, you know what I mean? It's, it's but they will. It, much less so now because there's much more diversity than there was before. Although there's still a but large there still is problem. there's still a problem on the road and still a problem with those flyers and unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people do it to themselves. They will build their own shows that way, uh, if whether it be chocolate comedy night or hot babes doing comedy or whatever it is, they do it to themselves. Which it just it, I try to avoid shows that have a thing like that. Now, if it ha- so happens that it's just all women, great. That's great. Just unplanned. There's no reason why it shouldn't be. And I just did a show with Natasha Leggero and Maria Bamford. Uh, That's a good show. And Tignataro. That's a great show. It wasn't planned that right. it was all women. That was just what was booked and great. And it was not mentioned that there was, you know, there's no reason to say that an evening with just all just, women. Just putting your names it's is just, enough for people to know it's a good show. Oh, that's very nice of you. Uh, and, it, and it was great. Maria Bamford, Natasha Leggero, Tignataro, three of the greatest comics working. And, and all different styles. And, and yeah, very different. And it, and it was wonderful to not have any mention of gender on the right. on the advertising, it just so happened that that three, uh, um, except for Maria Bamford, all had a vowel on the end of their name. <laughs> you could have built it that way, I suppose. Now this this young comedian special though for HBO, mm-hmm. this lineup was pretty good though. It had oh a- yes, it Andy was. Kindler, Nick DiPaolo, Bill Bellamy, uh, Ray Romano, uh, Judd Apatow, uh-huh. and, uh huh, and Dana Carvey hosting. And Dana Carvey hosting. Now you and Judd then. I knew him already from the Ben Stiller show. Right. I was going to say, because of the timing, had both of those already started? Yes. Okay. I probably wouldn't have gotten the Young Comedian special had those not been airing and having a certain cachet. Larry Sanders most especially having a cachet. To give you buzz. Uh, yeah. So, um, and and um, as you know, Gary passed recently, and um, there's a, I think they're going to be re-releasing Larry Sanders on um, – on HBO in, in honor of him. Yeah, um, HBO did make an announcement. And uh, that was the first acting job I had was Larry Sanders and thanks to Gary and Judd. I mean, the two of them pulling for me against, I'm sure, the network's wishes because I was an unknown commodity who was also not an actor. What did what did they see in you? Uh, I think I just had to be in the right place at the right time and, and they didn't – Hate my stand-up, <laughs> you know. So that was, I, and I was uh, socially friendly with Judd and, and Ben. Mm-hmm. Still, you know, we hung around together socially, and uh, got along well. And I think that, like I said, Judd may have suggested it to Gary, or Gary had seen me do stand-up because I had done stand-up in venues that he had also performed in. And I think that I just got lucky, very lucky, that they were willing to take a chance. What was your first meeting with Gary like? Easy, easy. It was just. Uh, actually, I think it was uh, him just trying different things. He also had me audition, and maybe it was just to see how the acting would go for his wife that hadn't been cast yet. Okay. Um, but I think that was just to see for different ways, to, you know, comedic style and more dramatic scenes that he would do with her. And that just seemed unusual. I felt very uncomfortable because I had just turned 25, 
and I was a very young 25, like very immature, <laughs> and I used to look far younger than I was. That certainly yeah. changed and has caught up to me, but I really did look like a kid. So doing husband and wife scenes with him that were taped felt unusual to me. And so I think I was very, very shy. And the scenes where I was just the assistant booker or what have you were much more comfortable for me to do. And he also encouraged a tremendous amount of improv, which made it much easier. And he's also a very congenial, easy-to-get-along-with guy who wants you to do well. He's very kind and very supportive. So it was... You know, I didn't understand that other acting jobs weren't going to be like that. I didn't understand other auditions weren't going to be like that. So I learned the hard way very quickly after Sanders and doing other auditions or other shows. Many people don't encourage that kind of improvisation, keeping the context right. in mind, certainly, and not going off the rails. But they they almost take it as if it's an act of aggression, changing your line, even if it doesn't change the context or even change the way a person would answer you. So even if they just memorized their lines, they can still answer you the same exact way, but you're just changing it a little bit. Sorry, I think I keep burping because I chugged a Diet Sunkist <laughs> while walking here. I was afraid that might happen. This episode is I sponsored by Diet Sunkist. I love Diet Sunkist Tonic Soda. I <laughs> drank it so fast walking here, mm-hmm. and unfortunately it's right here in my solar plexus, and I'm afraid there's I, like had, a, I had no idea. Okay, there's, like a, there's air bubbles threatening. <laughs> threatening to present themselves. How, how, how did that, how does this feeling right now with the air bubbles compare to the feeling you had at Saturday Night Live? Oh, there's really no comparison. Um, no, no. Uh, that was a failure on my part. You know what I mean? Like I was not up to the task of trying to make my way, even though, again, not a good fit at that at that time. Oh, my. But that happened at I the think, same time you were doing hang on. No, no, Sanders. no. That was a... Uh, I unfortunately left oh. Sanders to do it, and he oh, very and graciously okay. let me out of my contract to do that. Um, I shouldn't have done it. I should have stayed with Sanders. Now, SNL, maybe at a different year, would have been better for me because uh, it's always shifting and changing, and there's always different personalities in play. It just didn't happen to work out that particular year with all the personalities in play, and I wasn't mo- you know, mature enough to – to overcome, A, my drinking and, mm-hmm. and my love. I'm in New York, <laughs> and I can stay out 24 hours a day, and I'm going to. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm going to. You can do anything. And I did. You know what I mean? Like, I, right. to me, that was the, the most important thing in the world was nightlife. You know what I mean? All, to, to the City, detriment yeah. of every other thing. But also, my writing style and the ideas I put forth were not working out with what was wanted at that at that time, like I said, maybe in a different year with a different head writer, different, different, what have you, it may have worked out better. Or if I had more maturity, it may have worked out better. But, um, and you would think at 30, I would have been mature enough. I, I don't know how the kids in their early 20s make it because that's a tough, a tough place. You got to really be strong and believe in yourself. And I, I'm not, I don't, I still to this day, am not particularly strong or believe myself in situations where I feel others doubt me. And because I'm, quite capable of doubting myself. And um, so it from the get-go didn't work out. And so then I just accepted that mm-hmm. and failed, you know, and 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 I asked to leave early. The story is I was fired. I was not. It was by mutual agreement. But, you know, people can't believe that, that you would leave. So they – and I guess there's no way past it. They'll never believe that, that somebody would leave. Although – Catherine Hare left after one day. Ben Stiller left after five weeks. There have been others who've left 
early, but it is hard to fathom for most people. Well, it's, it's an institution. Uh, yes, it is. And it's for some people in comedy or show business, it's a be all end all. And I was thrilled. Goal. I was thrilled. Uh, but I, you know, Bob Odenkirk had said to me, don't do it. Don't do it. This is not the right time. He sensed mm. too, because he had just left there. Right. And um, he knew that, that it wasn't a good environment at that particular time for certain sensibilities. And uh, he said, stay with Sanders. And, and I should have. But at the same time, how can you say no to Saturday Night Live? It's very difficult. And for all the grief it can bring some of us, it's the greatest thing in the world for others. And I'm very happy for them. You know, those that succeed there, I admire that. And I think it's great. And they deserve it. And um, there's others of us that have been beaten by the institution and, right. and uh, are worse for the wear for it because you don't forget it. You don't forget failing there at all. It, it, it's something that really sticks to your ribs. So well, I mean, Mark Maron made it a point of his podcast. Well, yeah, I try. The thing is, I, I would rather not discuss it, but right. others bring it up. And it seems like it would be impolite for me to say, right. hey, I'd rather not discuss it. I, I guess I could yeah. have said that. I was only there for a minute and a half many, many years ago, but it still comes up almost every podcast you do or any interview you do. So, uh, you know. Well, so, it, it kind of fits in with, with what you're talking about, about finding things that are fit for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like I said, had I been more mature mm -hmm. uh, or, or, or um, like I said, willing to overcome my desire to just go out into the night. Honestly, I, I was – it's an, an allure that used to really – thrill me you know and now that i'm older and, and i've lived here for years it's not as right as thrilling, you grow, but there you was, grow out of it hopefully yeah uh, uh it's just and also i don't drink anymore so really what's, so what's the point what's the point uh but it, it, there was something about that that freedom and the uh, and the options and the excitement of of going you know that trumped um and I'm sorry to drag Donald Trump into it. That Trump, uh, I almost mentioned him when you talked about those comedy central all, roasts. All, but... all else, you know what I mean? I, I should have just kept kept writing and trying, writing and trying. But but it was I doubt they would have ever um, been thrilled with the type of stuff I, I was trying to. What do. was what was the first thing you you found that really did fit? Well, yeah. you know, Ben So and Larry Sanders fit. Yeah. Stand up in its way fit. Even when I was bombing, I knew I was going to stick with it. And I rarely stick with anything. Believe me. I am the first. The only two things I can think I've ever stuck with is stand up and making jewelry. I uh, honestly, I've, I've never lost the interest in making jewelry or doing stand up. Never. And I have vacillated on other things that 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 I've done before or quit or l asked to leave. Right. And um W was eating it kind of a result of, like, coming out of the SNL? Eating it? Yeah, the show. The Luna Lounge stuff. Yeah, I didn't start that. Oh. That was Beth Lapidus started Luna. Uh, oh, in L.A. She, uh, what she's... was the show you did in New York? Well, there I didn't start it. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, it was, there was a show called Eating It, uh, among others, that were um, venues outside of the comedy club world that were doing shows. There was Rebar and Luna Lounge and stuff like that. Uncabaret was Beth Lapidus in um, in Los Angeles, which I could which I could say was a spiritual sister of of eating it. You know, okay. um, there was other shows like that that I had started uh, that were not nearly as successful as those shows. Okay. I'd started a couple of shows with uh, Colin Quinn and Dana Gould at, at a couple of coffee shops, 
um, in L.A. And then um, I tried briefly to do it in New York, but I found that it is a headache booking <laughs> comics and making them show up. They, uh, you know, very frequently don't or literally two seconds before they're supposed to go on, they'll tell you that they're not going to make it. And you don't find that out until you check in with them to say, hey, are you coming? And then I realize I don't want to do, you know, that is, I'm quite happy for me to just, I'll just do the show. You know what I mean? Like, right. But the thing is, is you make. The administrative You part advertise or you make flyers or what mm-hmm. have you that, that list certain comics that people have come to see. Right. And when they don't come, um, I realized I don't want to do that. Whereas for whatever reason in L.A., they always came. You know what I mean? The ones that – and this is before texting and everything. So it would be very difficult to get in touch with them, uh, you know, via payphone or a landline. And that we never had a problem with that because also there was always comics dropping in so you could pull somebody from the audience and they would do it. Yeah. So – but I didn't start – yeah, I can't take credit for eating it. Well, what can you do? I mean I I performed (laughs) on it. What can I take credit for? Some of the jewelry I'm wearing tonight – I could take credit for that. But. You could, I heard you on, a, on another podcast call yourself a Bic lighter of an actor. Disposable? No, no, no. I was uh, talking dis- about. Oh well, many of us are. We're, we're Bic lighters. What I was saying is on on certain crime procedurals, mm-hmm. uh, which I was on one, a spinoff of Criminal Minds, which I asked to leave early, and they right. would not. But they did have my character shot in the head while tied to a chair. They'll let you go when they're ready to let you go at networks. Uh, some. Some are quite happy. Like I was on another show called Girlfriends Got a Divorce. I asked to leave and they said, okay. Uh, Because, again, there's a million other actors who are quite happy to do it. And I'm always thankful for any job I get. But sometimes the content – and and, uh, I I do care about the scripts. I do care. And, and, you know, I don't have children, so it's not it's not like there's this other thing hanging over my head. I don't have a mortgage and children. Or you're not doing a gig so, for so, uh, understandably, those purposes. When you have children and mortgages and things like that, you are much more likely to stick with something, whether you are pleased with the content or not. Um, sometimes when the content is, is different than you thought it would be or you feel like it is just people are not bringing their A game and it makes it very difficult for you. And the actors to bring their A game because it's, it's you know what I mean. Uh, There's certain shows that you've seen them uh, yeah. where you could say, "Wow, it would be difficult to write that badly." Um, <laughs> and and, and get so many people watching. And yeah, and so there's some actors that override that are great no matter what content. And then there's some actors that are neither here nor there about the content. They th- that's not a criticism. They just do their job and they do it. Mm. But I I. Financially, don't have to because when I was making money in the 90s, I didn't buy anything. My low self-esteem served me very well. I thought, this isn't going to last, and it didn't. And and I saved my money, and I live modestly to this day. I live in the one-bedroom apartment uh, uh, that I have been in since 94, and I was able to purchase it some years ago. And I don't have a car. I don't have a more – you know what I mean? Like I, right. I, I, I don't have children and stuff like that. So I don't have to do – Certain jobs, and I feel like, and I don't say this with rancor or, or in a condescending way. There's plenty of actors who need it and want it more than me, and they should have it. They should do it. And I mean that in an open-hearted way. I don't. I don't mean that in a in, in an arrogant way. Right. And what I meant by big disposable. When I asked to leave this crime procedural, which was horrible, and luckily it was canceled. Um, 
And it wasn't because I didn't like the cast and crew. I did very much. Everybody's very nice. That's not never the issue. It was the content. It's of the, the content, show. which was quite violent and misogynistic, and like many crime procedurals, it's just torture porn. Right. The misogyny silkly packaged as an hour crime procedural, <laughs> and uh, there's stock character number thirty-two, and of course, as usual, I was cast as the tough but fair, you know, sexually ambiguous, either DA or cop or what have you wearing sensible shoes and that's fine if, if the if the quality's good i don't care about any other thing you know what i mean like if the writing's good what a gift you know but this wasn't the case in my opinion actually anybody's opinion i'm not even gonna try and pretend it was like hey this is great they were making sausage it's a lucrative franchise and um i asked again with with no rancor or malice may i please leave because there's no end of other actors that want to be there and they should be and in these crime procedurals who knows who's who you know what i mean (laughs) they it's you know five or six people who say uh phrase uh, bits of a sentence one person could deliver while standing in a row you know what i mean about the crime what have you dna how they how they know when one person's going to stop speaking so they can start speaking and they speak in a manner that nobody speaks in do you know what i mean like it, it, the way they you talk at one another there's there's no uh, it's not it's not fulfilling like a british crime drama you know right. what i mean you, if you watch pbs or acorn tv and you see some of these british crime dramas they are fantastic and the character it's not about the crime it's about the people and and we have had that in this country too on occasion especially in the 1970s it was all about the people, you know, whether it be Rockford Files or Beretta or anything. Those must have been very interesting to be on. Right. Um, for these very slick ones now where it's very procedural and, the, the and, and violent, and, yeah. I don't know where some of these actors are getting their satisfaction from. And I'm not the only actor to have left these shows. You right. know, Mandy Patankin famously wanted off that very early. And, of course, his name was Mud, as was mine, and you're painted as being the most difficult, contrarian person in the world, and how dare you? And I, I can't emphasize enough that it's not a condemnation of the people, and and I'm very pleased the crew has jobs. I, I, I actually think that's the upside of it. It provides jobs for lots of people, and that's very good. But I'm sure all of them would be happy uh, doing that same job on a show we could all be proud of, you know? I don't know. Like, how do you feel about Walking Dead? I actually love it. I love it because I love the genre, but I can't honestly say I'm as involved as I was. I love the episodes when it's uh, like one person talking, like the a person's story. You Character know what I mean? development. Character development. Those are fascinating to me, and I love those uh, very much. Uh, uh, overall, I like the show very much, but I, I can't honestly say I'm as invested as I was. But there still are those episodes where it's one or two people talking. Um, and you get really into their story, and and I really like those episodes very much. So we could we could get you on there. Oh uh, no, 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 no. I, I can't. I I would never be asked to be on a show that's a hit like that. <laughs> I don't have that juice. No way, man. I, I we wish we can make it happen for you. I, no, we can't. Uh, believe me, I I would love to be on a show like that, or I would love to be on uh, a show even if nobody's ever seen it. That's good. That that would be phenomenal. And there's many many shows I would ache to be on and when I watch them I am so uh, envious uh, and 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 I'm happy for these actors I'm I, I begrudge I don't begrudge anyone anything um, you know a show like Better Call Saul or a show uh, 
you know, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt or or um, any of these British crime dramas that I watch on Acorn TV. Actually, anything on Acorn TV I, I would like to be on or any show that's good. And I wouldn't care if I was number 17th on the call sheet, you know, just to be right. part of something that everybody can be proud of would be great. Ideally, it would shoot in New York and I could walk to work. That would be the dream. But, um, you know, th- there are times when your career is in, in a place where you have access to that kind of right. opportunity. I don't. And, I, and I'm not saying that in a petty way. I'm just saying that's the reality of it. Um, there are times in your career when you have access to opportunity and times when you don't. And you, if you don't have sustained career success as a protective umbrella that allows you access to opportunity, um, it, it's like 99% of the Actors Guild, it's difficult to get access to that opportunity. You know, that's just the nature, right. and that's, I'm not complaining about it. It's an elective profession. I could always get another, oh, I mean, I can't get another job. I have no marketable skills, <laughs> but I, I, you know what I'm saying. It's a, nobody forces you to do it. Right. So to complain about it is silly in that manner. What I'm saying is it, uh, I'm not, not complaining. I'm just stating a fact that um, my access to opportunity is not there. And it won't be there till somebody takes a chance again. It's just like going back to the beginning of your career. You need another Gary and Judd to take a chance or whoever it will be. And it usually comes from somebody you don't know. It won't come from your friends. Because uh, oddly, when your career cools, those closest to you, it, it's, it's treated like a contagion. Subconsciously, uh, right. I think. And um, it it's one of those weird things where even though you're still very friends and they love you and you love them, it is, it feels like a contagion because they started with you, something about it. Uh, so usually when you get a break again, if you do, and it may never come, the second chance to, to have access to opportunity, it may never come, I accept that. Um, just, to, just to be able to work enough is good. Right. Um, but it won't come from someone you know. It'll come because they don't feel the contagion if it's, a, if it's somebody who doesn't know you. Does that make sense? Isn't that why so many people go to like Dancing with the Stars? And oh no, no, those did. are people who have mortgages or, or things like that, or who, well, or need to be in front of a camera, or they just want to dance. I have no idea. I, I, I mean, I, I would never do Dancing with the Stars, but a because I can't dance. B, I wouldn't enjoy it. <laughs> and C, I don't have a need to be in front of the camera. I don't have any social media platforms and stuff like that. I I do have a need to do stand up. I really feel when I can't do it. I get depressed. I miss it. I like to do it. It's enjoyable. It, it's fulfilling. I just enjoy it. But not because I feel people need to see me. I don't tweet anything. There's a fake me tweeting. Right. It's not me. But I don't have to be. I don't feel like people need to see me uh, at all. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I would like it if I was more popular. I would like it if I had more jobs. But it's not because I feel like, boy, people are really missing out. I'm not in that thing. I don't think that. Well, I feel like those those shows are people's way of trying to jumpstart. Yes, they think the, it is, and maybe their way it around does. the contagion. Um, I don't know if it that is the way in. I, I don't know what it is. It certainly doesn't hurt them, I guess, in the short term, but in the long game, I don't know that somebody goes. I'm talking about a quality show. Right. A quality show says, I want that person who won on Dancing with the Stars. But there are certainly actors that have, like Ralph Macchio, for example, went on Dancing with the Stars. Now, he is a guy that deserves access to opportunity and uh, also has children in college at the same time. Uh, very nice guy. I was doing a film with him at the time. He had just come off winning, and he mm. enjoyed it. He's a good dancer. But he was saying it wouldn't have been his first choice to do that. But he, like anyone, has bills to pay. 
and doesn't always get the access to opportunity that he deserves. He does. He's a very good actor. And, you know, at one time he was in everything, right? right? And then it stops. And then people are like, oh, we're done with you now right. in certain ways. Not that he doesn't work. He does. He In, in the world of films... Uh, much like, again, a huge portion of the Actors Guild, there's a lot of independent film, and I'm talking about real independent, not independent Spirit Award nonsense where it's the same people you'll see at the Oscars. They're just sitting outside in black jeans. You've got a film in um, Tribeca this uh, year. I do, and that's a film uh, that I was very pleased to get, and it, and and hopefully it will be good. It's with um, Melanie Linsky, and um, it's called Little Boxes, and I was very happy to do it and had a great time doing it. But a lot of times th- these films that are, are very low budget, mm-hmm. uh, don't have the budget to dis- be distributed. You hope they're seeing it. And I think it was luckily picked for Tribeca because it is a local film that truly is independent. And, and I haven't seen it. I hope it's very good. It should be good. The script was good and everybody was good in it. And uh, like I said, it was very enjoyable to do. Um, but then there's lots of other ones that are even lower budget than that one that don't get into festivals, that, that a lot of actors and, and actors you know, like that used to be, had access to opportunity, are in them and they don't get released ever or they go straight to video, tel- streaming. Video on or, demand. Yeah, yeah, Is things it, like that. I get that. emails from publicists all the time about these movies. Right. And, and um, I wonder who will ever see them. Well, I think now more than ever, people can see things more than they ever could before. But they have to know to find them, I I, guess. I guess, but at least it gives it a life of some kind because, you know, I I don't know why people make movies. It seems like a Herculean (laughs) task, especially when they bankrupt themselves doing it. It's, uh, I'm risk averse. I am risk averse. And uh, that's why I don't have children. And that's why I don't own a home and things like that. And that's why I also have never, when people say, would you ever like to, Write or direct a, a short, uh, not a short film. I have done a short film before. That's that was different, and uh, but uh, a movie. First of all, a I don't have a story. I think that needs to be told. So I'm not going to do it just for the sake of creating content. But b no, I don't want to empty my bank accounts and go through the rolling the rock up a hill to get a movie made to make it and you can then say Sisyphean. I always mispronounce it. Sisyphus. Sisyphus. The task of Sisyphus. But it is. It's an enormous. I think it is like climbing Everest. That's why it's called base camp at a movie. Like, you know what I mean? Where you meet where people congregate. It's called base camp. Just like in a mountain. To me, it's easier. It would be easier to climb Everest because at least I could strap myself to a willing Sherpa if they were willing and would take some money and have an oxygen tank put on me. Now, it wouldn't be a noble effort for me to get to the top of the mountain. It would be, you know, it, it, it wouldn't be me doing it, but I'm saying it might almost be easier to get to the top of Everest than make a movie and get people to see it or finance, what have you. And Kickstarter, I don't feel comfortable with that. There are so many other issues and causes that people should be kickstarting, not to make another <laughs> small film about a bank heist or about 20-somethings in a relationship. That, to me, is the balls the size of Manhattan. <laughs> hey, Kickstart, come on, give me some money for my passion project about dating. Yeah, there's... Date, you know, to me, that is as tone-deaf as it gets. And that transcends generation. There's plenty of middle-aged people doing the same thing, whether it be for their album or right. something. But to ask for money... For you to do some thing like that when there are people 
<laughs> Syrian refugees for one, uh, or the Iraqi people for two, we could be doing a kickstart. We owe them some money. Uh, the indigenous First Nation tribes that still don't have representation in Congress. Perhaps you'll notice they don't ask for a lot of Kickstarter things. No. I, I, know, I notice there's not a lot of Syrian refugee kicks them themselves asking. I mean, there's benefits done and stuff like that. Right. But I, I, I find that odd. Help, yeah. you know, give me money to, not that I haven't been part of them because friends of mine have asked me, will you make some necklaces? Yes, I will because you're my friend. Oh, I as feel, a Kickstarter reward. As a Kickstarter reward. Uh, I feel horrible about this, but I'm not going to say no to you because these are lovely people making, and it does give people jobs. And also, it gives young people training who want to be in the union for, for certain and you just can't – you need the hours like right. to be a gaffer or a, or a DP, all these things. So that is the good news about these things. It gives young people access to training that they need if they want to join the union or, or, or to build a career behind the camera. So that I'm pleased about, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But um, a lot of times it's a shame because sometimes you'll see people who want to be directors who have no business – no business uh, directing anything who have just wiped out their credit cards, all their relatives, their friends, and it's a, it's like, oh, no. And for what? And for what? Because um, you can see sometimes when you're stuck inside a no-win situation. And what's good about these low-budget things is there's a great camaraderie. There really is, like when it's – when it's hardcore, like bring some clothes from home, bring mm -hmm. some jeans from home type thing, and you're stealing locations and stuff. It can be quite exciting and fun, and and you are constantly actually working, not sitting around waiting for lights to be set up. So that's that's good. Yeah. But sometimes you see, oh, this guy or gal has no idea what they're doing, <laughs> and they don't even know what they don't know, and they won't even ask the DP who's trying to help them. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, there's some people that that don't. Feel they, they don't even realize that the DP can save their life. Um, and it's a very strange thing. And they don't even know certain things about crossing the line. You know what I mean? Like it won't cut together like if you stand. Or they don't care about continuity. That one always blows my mind when the director's like, oh, who cares? Who cares? Who cares if there was 18 extras behind you when we shot the master and they all left because they were bored and now there's four? And that to me, though, that makes the movie fail. Right. Because it makes it look bad you know what i mean like those type of things anyway i'm sorry you want to ask a question yeah i'd be great at a filibuster i told you who would uh so who recently has has given you great advice to to save your bacon uh, well what is you like you you talk about these these new filmmakers who who don't know enough to, to oh no no that asked. that's their issue right. you know what no, i mean like no, i'm saying so in your life and your career at this point who is who has recently been great in terms of offering you advice to help you maneuver this part of your career. Oh no, it's not. It's not about advice. I know. For what, like I said, I, I I have a very good grasp on where I am mm -hmm. and and things like that. And I'm I'm not I'm not. I, I was lucky in the '90s. I was lucky. Mm -hmm. Some people don't ever get that kind of luck. I'm very pleased that happened. I'm also very pleased I saved my money. Uh, you know, and didn't buy anything and didn't assume it was going to go on forever because it certainly didn't. And also I took two years off to work at Air America radio station, which right. also wasn't helpful to jump back in after two years out as a middle-aged woman. You know, that's the reality of mainstream entertainment anyway. Uh, it's that as a middle-aged woman jumping back in after two years, um, it's not 
going to be that in the mainstream, you know. But again, it's selective. Nobody makes you do it. Uh, but um, there is something about uh, the only the thing I would say that I struggle with, and this is this isn't anybody else's problem but my own, is it does hurt my feelings many times to audition for things to never get things. You know what I mean? Like one audition after the other, and some I I'm quite willing to say, oh, I didn't do that great, and then some I, times I feel like I nailed that. I nailed that. And the reason that you didn't get it is you find out they want a name or you weren't attractive enough. It's that simple. And there's no way that doesn't hurt your feelings. Uh, it is personal. It's not not personal. Right. It's totally personal. And uh, th those things are, can be painful. But that's my problem to deal with, mine alone. That's nobody else's issue. And there's no advice that can get you around that. I could, Because you can always advise others about not – not letting these things get right. to them. It's not easy to take that advice. It does get to me. It hurts me. There's Now, there's some things I audition for that I could care less if I get them or not. I just like the exercise of auditioning. Right. Sometimes it's the it. only chance you get to act at all. And so I do it. I, didn't, I don't get it. That's fine. Then there's some I would very much like to get. And the feedback will be sometimes one of those two things that I, you just heard me tell you about. Mm -hmm. You're not known enough, um, and they would prefer... They've now got the budget, and they would prefer to get somebody who people know uh, or is more popular than you or or what have you or is better looking or younger or looks better in HD, uh, and that hurts you. And uh, so that's, you know, that's, that's the only thing, but there's no advice I can't give myself. I know that I shouldn't mm -hmm. get as, as hurt, but I think in anyone's life, no matter what your vocation – People's faith in you goes a long way. It isn't – I actually don't feel like, well, if you believe in yourself, that's the most important thing. It isn't. Others need to, too, depending on what you do for a living. You know what I mean? Like, oh, the most important thing is you think you did great in that audition. No, it isn't. The most important thing is the casting director and the director think I did well not. That's the most important thing. How I feel is irrelevant at best. <laughs> at best. And, uh, you know, it, it feels good when people believe in you. It feels good. And it, it, it bolsters you on. And that was nothing that Gary was wonderful at. He, I'm sorry, I'm just getting upset. No, Gary. No, it's fine. I saw, I, um, ran, I ran into Judd Apatow last week at the Comedy Cellar, and we just talked about Gary for about 15 minutes. He's just, I'm so sorry. There's nothing more annoying when people do this. But he, his, um, he, he did it with, uh, you know, all the actors, but especially the younger comics who would be on in parts, like when Sarah Silverman, Marilyn Rice Cup, and, and others would be on, he knew how much it meant for him to say that was good. That was that was good. You know, don't be afraid to improvise, even if he was never going to use it or it wasn't good. You know, some people will shut you down and say that no, and then you are humiliated beyond belief. He went out of his way to um extend courtesy and goodwill and it makes you want to do better for that person and uh, there's not a lot of people who do that uh, and a lot because they're busy and there's not a lot of time when you're shooting um, and he certainly was very stressed and all of that he honestly couldn't take his own advice too. He, nobody was harder on themselves than him. Right. Yet nobody was kinder to others. That was that was 
That was part of his style. He meant a lot to a lot of people. Yeah, he he definitely. You know, strangers on the street when he passed, and because of modern culture, people find out things immediately on their phones or on their devices at similar times. And uh, I didn't know Ron Williams that well either. I mean, I knew Gary well, but I didn't know Ron Williams well. But the same thing happened on the streets. You could hear people talking about it and being regretful. And that's really saying something. When you overhear people going, oh, no, Gary Shanley died. Or, and with Ron Williams, you, you probably heard it, too. People yeah. going, oh, like you could hear audible. Right. That's how much they mean to people. Unfortunately, they didn't know. Um, Robin Williams didn't know that towards the end. He struggled with a number of things. Right. Illness and also uh, self-doubt and things and like depression that. And, yeah. and depression. But Gary also would have had no idea that people on the street audibly and collectively were um, upset that a person they'd never met, you know, things like that. And and sometimes people who, um, in comedy clubs, in the audience, have since, since he passed said to me, oh, no, that's horrible, you know, just to say it, um, which I think it, it, it comes from such a nice place. And, and they, uh, and that episode of Freaks and Geeks, hmm. where Martin Starr is watching. Right, just watching Gary. Gary Shanley. Uh, I've seen that episode probably five or six times, and this is even before Gary died, would cry every time. That was executed brilliantly. And you know it's real for the writers. Uh, right, they, that, was like Jordan, that, that was very specific. Sometimes inspecificity is universal. It universally touches you. And that's what I'm talking about, about the difference between that kind of writing and the type of writing where you're a disposable hater. <laughs> that, that's what exactly, that's exactly what I'm talking about. To be part of something like that, like, like a scene like that in Freaks and Geeks, that's the dream. You know what I mean? As, uh, as, as a person who, who wants to go into acting or whatever, to, to be part of something that good, that real, that's that different. And, um, in mainstream television and film, that's really not the nature of what they do. But sometimes, accidentally, despite the network's best efforts, things like freaks and geeks get through. And then, of course, they're not given the respect they deserve at the time, and then they are found. Right. But that episode in particular, because I think so many people could relate to that idea of being bullied and having the worst day, and then you come home to an empty home, and you're eating in front of the TV, and you're just down. And whatever it is, whether it be a bit of music or comedy, if that's what you're into, it changed. It changes your whole day, and um, that that scene with Martin Starr is is just so beautiful. Let me let me ask you this then: What since since Gary was so good to you and the and the other younger comedians on and the, everybody on the actually not just right. but he was good to everybody. But. What would your what would your first advice be to to any young comedian you meet? And I'm sure they ask you all oh, the time. Th I guess, it, oddly, it would be don't take advice. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, because a lot of times people, they don't know you or what's in your best interest. Um, there are times where I have advised younger comedians who happen to be friends of mine. Don't swear so much. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to work so blue or, and I know this is generational, but boy, referring to, there's something about uh, the younger comedians referring to their anatomy in the most explicit of terms that uh, really, uh, I mean, I, f I feel like uh, you, it's not, that's not the problem talking about that stuff, but let's up our game linguistically. Let's, uh, 
really get into the Queen's English. Let's not bastardize the Queen's English so much. And, you know, it would make it far more interesting to talk about a scatological or a sexual thing that if it is well-worn territory, which a lot of times these things are, that's right. just the nature of life. Wouldn't it be far more interesting to couch it in as as intelligent a manner as one can? In a good idiom. Uh, or... in, in, get a thesaurus. You know what I mean? Like at least challenge. Some metaphors. Just, something. Or something. Uh but I realize that that's not my place, really, to say that. But when asked mm-hmm. if they are a person who works particularly blue, but especially if they've got something to say, but it's getting lost in all that swearing and swagger and loudness, which can be part and part a part uh, at a manifestation of insecurity. That's certainly understandable. But if, especially if that comedian's got something, that's where I really feel like that you definitely don't need to be yelling. You don't need to be swaggering like that or having this bluster or being so over-sexual or so uh, hardcore talking about the last girl you slept with or what, what, whatever it is, I, I find that it's just more interesting to, to the hearer and you, the speaker, as a comic, challenge yourself linguistically. Challenge yourself to find a better word, find a better way to say it, find an interesting way in or out, most especially when it's well-worn territory. But... Um, that that's my only advice is when asked if that's the case mm-hmm. other than that sometimes there'll be a comic who to me seems like whatever it is they don't seem like they got it <laughs> and 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 that's not to say they won't but at this present time there's something seems to be like they're in the wrong they've made a a choice and <laughs> a i don't know error. and i don't know why they're going down this road but it doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be for the right reasons that's just an opinion and I would certainly never say that to them, and I would never be impolite to to that person. But they know who they are. Uh, no, they, they don't. That's the thing. They definitely don't know who they are. Um, and, and, and like I said, it's not my place right. to, to say, you ain't got it. You know, I never would do that to a young person. And also, many people said that to me when I was younger. And uh, they believed themselves to be correct at the time. And, yes, I was bombing a lot, but – there was a, a, a good number of people who advised me to stop, dead stop, full stop, stop doing stand-up. And yet I just wanted – I was blissfully – you know, I just wanted to do it. And I, and I also ha- had no other skills, and I did, didn't know what else to do. And, and, and I enjoyed it so much, even when it was bad. Not that it doesn't hurt me, and it still to this day hurts me if I get heckled or if I bomb. It hurts me terribly. I would prefer to do well. But – um the, I would say, for the most part, the advice I give is don't take advice, but um, don't swear so much, and, mm-hmm. and you don't have to yell, I guess. That's it. Well, Janine, I'm so glad that you didn't take the advice of people who told you to stop. Oh, thank you. Because you do definitely know who you are, and and I I have faith in you. Thank you. And I believe in you. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to see more of you. Why, thank you. Well, also, like I said, I don't need to be – it's not like – a grateful nation would go, yay, we're seeing him more. I, that's not that's not what I'm saying. Uh, all, all I was saying is, is it, it does for any of us in any line of work or or unemployment. Others' faith in you means a great deal to oh, you, and yeah. and and it just seems like um, when you don't get auditions or you're passed over for jobs uh, and things, it feels as if, oh, I don't have faith in this person. I don't think they can do it. That that's how it feels anyway, oh, and. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm just saying that uh, it that 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 would be nice, you know, if more often um, in that realm. Because with stand up, you get a nice reaction immediately in the moment. You know, people 
you get it that night or when you're doing it. But with with it's a long game for you know for acting, and it's or even very this. few and far between for when it works out well and when you get praise for it. I mean, for point five five percent of the union, they do very well all the time, and they se- seem to make all the right moves, and that's that's the the very 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 tip top lucky ones mm-hmm. who who you know like your Dustin Hoffman's or Al Pacino's or Helen Mirren's and stuff. They just don't make a wrong move, and 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 they're well respected, and they're very good, and they're well received, and that that kind of thing. But for for most people, it's hit or miss, and there's stretches in between and stuff like that. Well, Janine, I think this was a hit. Well, so. thank you, and thank, thank you so much for I appreciate for coming it. and sitting with me. Thank you for having this very professional. This is very professional, and kudos to you, sir, in the booth there. This used to be just an apartment on the Lower East Side, and now look at it. It's a state of the art. It really is. It is. It's like a professional studio. Yeah. If you were on on HGTV, they'd be Property Brothers would ask you advice, I think. So come on down to Showbiz Studios. You got to go to Canada <laughs> for HGTV. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.